Well, I mentioned the ordination service that is coming this evening. I want to say along with that that I welcome, we welcome, uh, Theron Hawkins and his um, wife, Tina. And uh, Theron, we're glad you're here. Some of you know Theron because we served with them at Next Level Church while Nathan was down in Tuscaloosa. And uh, God is blessing that church plant there and uh, is growing it. And the labor that has been put in is bearing fruit. And I asked Theron this evening to bring the charge to Nathan, since Nathan served with him for, for several years on that church planting team, and look forward to hearing uh, Theron share this even, evening uh, with us in the ordination service. And also, I have a special guest of my father-in-law, Mike Perry, and um, a whole lot of what I know about uh, ministry and working with people, I know from uh, Mike, and uh, so grateful that he's able to be here for the ordination service this evening as well. And uh, looking forward to what God's going to do in our time together. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to look today at verse 30 and 31. We've actually been in this passage of Scripture for several weeks. Today is the last day that we're going to be in this passage. But I have a message for you entitled, Jesus is Our Redemption. And as part of our larger series of being conformed to the image of Jesus and what that means for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus. I want to tell you a story. Some of you might know the name Steve McQueen, depending on what your age range is. Uh, Steve McQueen, of course, was a famous actor, but you might not know a whole lot about his life's story. He had a very difficult childhood. He had a string of abusive stepfathers that beat him and abused him in various ways and made things very difficult in his early years. Unsurprisingly, he ran away from home with a very deep-seated anger. He had a broken spirit. But even in the midst of all of that, he rose in the 1960s and the 1970s to become the highest-paid actor in the world. And he acted in some of the famous movies like The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape and many others that some of you would recognize. Steve McQueen had it all. He had money. He had fame. Uh, He had all the women that he could possibly want. Anything that the world could offer, Steve McQueen had it. In fact, one time he was asked, do you believe in God? And he replied, I believe in me. He reached the pinnacle of his life, but he began to have some health problems. And when he began to have some health problems, he moved to a small town near Ventura, California. His third wife said that the one thing that Steve McQueen lacked was peace. He owned 11 airplanes at one time. And he bought a vintage plane from the World War II era that he didn't know how to fly. So he began to ask his friends, who could teach me how to fly this plane? And they answered, Sammy Mason. Sammy Mason was in his mid-60s at the time. He had been a stunt pilot. He had worked for Lockheed Martin. And Steve McQueen went and hired him to work with him to teach him how to fly this plane. Well, after spending some time together, Steve noticed that there was something different about Sammy's life. It wasn't like everybody else. So he asked him the question, what is it about you that's different? You have a marvelous disposition, and there's something that is different about you. Sammy answered, Steve, it's my relationship with Jesus Christ. Steve McQueen was intrigued, so he continued to ask questions. Sammy invited him to come to church with him. He accepted the invitation, and to make a long story short, 
he came to faith in Jesus Christ, Steve McQueen did. Not long after that, he contracted cancer, and he was very ill, and he had always wanted to meet Billy Graham, and he's sick, and he knows things aren't going well with his life, so he sends word through the proper channels uh, that it might be a possibility for Billy Graham to come and to see him. Billy Graham agreed. He finally made it, and when he comes through the door, Steve McQueen sees him, and he says, well, praise the Lord. I've been wanting to meet you for a long time. He said, I watched you on television in your crusades for years. And here's what he said. He said, I used to drink to forget my guilt after you preached. I wanted what you preached, but I wasn't willing to pay the price. Billy Graham gave him a small brown leatherback New Testament that he had carried all over the world. And he had marked it up. He prayed for him and he encouraged him. And they said that when Steve McQueen passed away at the age of 50, on his, Bible, on his chest was laying the Bible that Billy Graham had given him, and it was open to John 3.16. Steve McQueen said that the one thing that he regretted before he died, the one thing that he regretted was that he didn't have any more time than he had to be able to tell people about what Jesus had done in his life. Greg Laurie coordinated a movie, The Evangelist. Uh, Greg Laurie coordinated a movie about Steve McQueen's life and about his faith. And it's entitled Steve McQueen, an American icon. It's pretty easy to find on the internet if it's something that might encourage you. But I'll tell you that story to ask this question. What happened in Steve McQueen's life? What happened in his life? He was redeemed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And our theme today is that Jesus is our redemption. And I've got good news for you. God did not just save Steve McQueen. He will save any of us who place our faith and our trust in Jesus. Jesus will be our redemption if we trust in him and believe in him by faith. And I'd say to you today, graduates, this is a particularly timely word for you. Because when we look at a man like Steve McQueen, who was an icon of culture, he was the epitome of what the world would draw you into and toward and make you think that that's where you're going to find peace and that's where you're going to find satisfaction when in reality, he lacked that peace and satisfaction. And if you chase after the things of the world, you will lack that peace and that satisfaction as well. And as someone said, the king of cool met the king of kings. And when he did, his life was transformed. And that can be true for us as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning of verse 30, here's what the Bible says. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. Now watch this. Our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, we've been working from this definition of spiritual formation, and it goes like this. Spiritual formation is the process of being conformed to the image of Jesus. And it is for God's glory, our good, and the blessing of others. It is God's will for your life, if you're a Christian, that you be like Jesus. Now, as for this theme of redemption, the word redeem was found commonly in those days as Paul was writing. 
in the social and the legal and the religious customs of the ancient world. And the metaphor of redemption includes the idea of loosing from a bond. It's setting free from a captivity or a slavery. It's buying something back that has been uh, lost or has been sold. So it is the purchasing back of something that you no longer have. And when we think about spiritual formation and what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we realize that redemption is God's buying us back. And what God does when he buys us back is he releases us from the bondage of sin. So that the New Testament word for redemption means the release on the payment of a ransom. So in these few moments that we have together, here's what I want to do, I hope to accomplish. I want to show you three perspectives of redemption from the Bible. And the first perspective is this. All people are in need of redemption. All people are in need of redemption. Now, the need for redemption indicates that there is something negative. So in other words, there's some type of choice or action or situation that came first, which results in the need for redemption. So what is that negative thing? That negative thing is sin. It's acting against God. It's rebelling against God. It's disobeying God. And in the Bible, sin is described as breaking the law of God. In 1 John 3 and verse 4, it says, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So in one way, when we look at the scripture and we see what sin is, we see that sin is lawlessness. We also see that the Bible teaches that sin is a debt. So think about it like an obligation. We all understand what debts are. Uh, We understand what obligations are. We know that it's something that is owed. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred specifically to sin as debt. You remember when he taught us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12? He said, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So we understand that our sin creates this situation where we are in debt to God and we can't do anything about our debt. Our sin creates a circumstance that we cannot satisfy. And the Bible says in Romans 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. So wages is what you give somebody for their labor. It's what's deserved because of what you did. And death is the wages for sin. Death is the separation of a person from their intended purpose. Now, as we think about this idea of death in the scripture, there are several uh, really ideas about it, uh, including the fact that there is physical death. We, and we know what that is. That's separation from the soul uh, and the body. There is spiritual death. That's the sin-fallen nature of a person that is on earth without Jesus Christ. And then there is eternal death, which is the separation of a person from God's presence forever. And that's the worst separation of all. Now, That's the negative situation. That's the circumstance we find ourselves in. That's the boat that we are all in. And if that's the end of the story, man, what a sad story. What a hopeless situation that we are in. But the second part of Romans 6.23 says, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the need for redemption implies helplessness. The picture of redemption is being held captive by forces that we cannot overcome. 
The situation is that we need a third party to intervene on our behalf or otherwise we can never be delivered from our situation. And it also reminds us that there is no way that we can do this on our own. Any discussion of Christian redemption is not about human effort. It's not about what we can do. It's not about what our efforts are. It's not about what is possible for us. It's about what God has done because he has provided the Redeemer. And that brings me to the second perspective. The way of redemption is through faith in Jesus. Now let me ask you this question. What do you need? What are some things that you pray for? Well, when I ask a general, broad, sweeping question like that, I'm going to get some different answers, right? I'm going to get a variety of answers. Um, Some of you are going to say, well, I've got a health situation right now. I went to the doctor and I got this report back and it's not very good and I need somebody to pray for me and I don't know exactly what I'm going to do. Or maybe you've already gotten that diagnosis and you're dealing with the treatments and you're trying to resolve it and that's what your need is. That's a real need. Some of you might be dealing with a financial burden right now and and it's something that's weighing heavily on you and you're praying that you would have the financial resources to meet that need. Others of you have a family need, a situation that you're praying for and you're lifting it up to God and you're saying, this is what I need at this moment. And there are any number of other things that could concern us. And all those things are important. I want you to know God cares about all those things. But I also want you to know that the greatest need every person has is to be right with God. That's the greatest need we've got. God created us. And our greatest need is to be in right standing with him, to to know him, and to be forgiven of our sins. And that only comes through redemption. That's the only way that we can have the forgiveness that we need. So we need the redemption, but how is it possible? Where does it come from? Listen to what Ephesians 1 and verse 7 and 8 says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. The in him that Paul refers to in Ephesians 1 in verse 7, refers to Christ. The best thing I can tell you today is that we are in need of a Redeemer, and there is a Redeemer, and his name is Jesus. That's the best news I've got for you. Because it's in him, it's in his perfect life, it's in his sacrificial death, it's in his payment for the penalty of our sins on the cross that your redemption has been secured. And we think about the examples of redemption in the Bible. We think about the Old Testament example of Israel where they were in bondage uh, in Egypt. And the Jews had had to put their uh, blood of the Passover lamb on the lentils and the doorposts of their homes during that Passover. And it was through that that it was a foreshadowing of the once and for all lamb of God, the sacrifice that would take away the sins of the world. We think about another example of redemption in the Old Testament of the kinsman redeemer. And in the book of Ruth, Naomi's family uh, property was lost basically due to debt and uh, had fallen into other hands uh, because she had lost her husband. She couldn't afford to recover it. And Boaz stepped in 
And he had the right to redeem the property by paying the price. And so he did. And when Paul uses the word redemption to refer to Christ paying the price of our sin uh, by his own death on the cross on our behalf, he is telling us the way to redemption. And there is no other way. There's no other hope. And when we speak of redemption, we have redemption through his blood. And when he says we have redemption through his blood, it reminds us that we were in bondage to sin. We were under the judgment of God. And with his own blood, Christ paid the penalty for our release. And God has done something for us that we could not do for ourselves. And Paul says that redemption through his blood means that we have forgiveness. Now, track with me here. Our sin is what made the whole situation necessary to begin with. And God intervened through his son so that we might have redemption. Now, you've all seen no trespassing signs. Um, I like to hunt, don't get a whole lot of time to do it. But uh, I also obey the no trespassing signs because I don't want to be on somebody's property that I'm not supposed to be on. But what's the purpose of a no trespassing sign? It tells you that that's the boundary and you're not supposed to go over it. You need to stay on your side. And if you don't stay on your side, you could be under the penalty of the law and you could suffer the consequences of crossing over those no trespassing signs. Spiritually speaking, God has given us no trespassing signs. And he tells us these are the boundaries. This is what's right. This is what's wrong. This is what's good. This is what's evil. But here's the situation. We all just blow past those no trespassing signs. We're all guilty. We've all gotten over there somewhere we ought not be. We've all crossed over something that God said don't do. And that crossing over something that God said don't do puts us in a position of being guilty before God. And through faith in the blood of Jesus, what God does for us is he forgives us crossing over those trespassing signs. And it's a release or a dismissal of the guilt that we have. And God's not saying you're not guilty. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're guilty, but I have laid the penalty on my son to remove that guilt from you so that you can be set free. And redemption through his blood means that we have freedom. Listen to what John 8 and verse 33 and following says. They answered him, speaking to Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus is speaking of freedom and what it means to be free in him. And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Now listen to this. This is good. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now how in the world could these people say they had never been in bondage to anyone? They had been in bondage to Egypt. They had been in bondage to Babylon. They had been in bondage to Persia. And as they were speaking, they were under the dominion of Rome. And yet they don't even recognize that they are. They had this spirit attitude of spiritual independence. And I'm going to tell you, there's consequences to trying to be independent from God spiritually. And their slavery to sin was the very worst kind. And yet Jesus came to set them 
free to bring them into his family. And Jesus comes to set us free. Now, friends, it's a desperate and an urgent situation when you find yourself in that circumstance. I read a little story from about a week ago. Uh, there was a car crash in Port Charlotte, Florida. And the call comes into 911 that a car has crashed and that the car has actually burst into flames. And that there's an occupant inside that they had not been able to get out yet. And the flames were shooting up five, six, seven, eight feet in the air. Two deputies, Garrett Parrish and Bryant Vasquez, arrived on the scene and they knew that they had to act quickly. The occupant of the car had the seat belt wrapped around his neck and his upper torso and the right side of his body had already caught on fire. And these two deputies sprung into action along with the help of a good Samaritan and they were able to act with urgency and rescue the man and deliver him to safety. Otherwise, he would have perished. Spiritually, our situation apart from Christ is desperate. Now, I know we think we've got all the time in the world. There are probably some people here today, you've not come to Christ, you've not been saved yet. And you think, well, I'm going to later. I'm going to get my life straight later. Yes, I'm going, to, I'm going to be saved later. I want to be a Christian before I die. But here's the problem, friends. You don't know the day or the hour. You don't know when it's coming. None of us are guaranteed life. The Bible says life is like a vapor. It's here today and then it's gone. And we think we have time when in reality the car is on fire, spiritually speaking. Our spiritual condition apart from Christ is urgent. And in steps Jesus. We look to Jesus. Jesus as the supreme liberator. You remember even as Jesus started preaching at the beginning of his public ministry in Isaiah 61, uh, he quoted from that passage where he said that he had come to proclaim release to the captives and to set at liberty the oppressed. So when Jesus said to those people, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed, he was saying some things that are very significant that I want you to hear today. When Jesus sets you free, it means that you are no longer chained to your sin. You are no longer chained to your guilt. You are no longer chained to your past. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how checkered your past is. It doesn't matter how deep you got yourself in the situation you got yourself in. Jesus will set you free. And when Jesus sets you free, that means that you can walk in faith and not in fear. You don't have to fear anybody or anything if you're in the hands of a good God and you've been set free by his son. And when Jesus sets you free, it means that you are free to be who God created you to be and who God intended you to be. I think at the heart of redemption, that's a significant aspect of what it's all about. God renewing and restoring who he uniquely created you to be. Friend, I want you to know that your life is not by accident. It is on purpose. And God has a purpose for you. Now for the third and final perspective. The blessing of redemption is life with God. Or to state it another way, the reason God redeems you is so that you can live life with him. Why did God redeem Israel? 
He redeemed Israel with a purpose that they would be his people. They entered into this special covenant relationship with God to worship him and to walk with him, to know him. They knew God as Yahweh, as the great I am. So in Christ, God redeems us to make us holy and to make us Christ-like people in the here and now. So what that means is that life with God is to be a redeemed life. You don't look at things the same way you looked at them when you were lost. You don't think about the things the same way that you did when you were lost. Your perspective on the world is now different. I love the way Oswald Chambers put it. He said, the work of salvation means that in your real life, things are dramatically changed. You no longer look at things in the same way. Your desires are new. The old things have lost their power to attract you. And then he says something that's very important that I want you to hear. One of the tests for determining if the work of salvation in your life by God is genuine is, has God changed the things that really matter to you? We've been redeemed to live as a redeemed people in the world. Now, this is where it really gets practical. Why does God save us to know him? Why does God save us to serve him? Why does God save us? So that other people would know him and serve him. That's why we exist as a church, to make Christ known so that people would experience the same grace that we have experienced. So that they can live on purpose the way God has called us to live on purpose. And I, I like the way Titus 3 and verse 8 puts it. It says, this saying is trustworthy. He said, I want to insist on these things. Listen to this. So that those who have believed God might be careful. And here it is to devote themselves to good works. He says, these are good and profitable for everyone. To devote themselves to good works. Now, don't get this out of order. This is not good works so that you can be redeemed. These are good works because you've been redeemed. This is not good works so that you can be right with God. These are good works because you are right with God. And he says, hey, church, Devote yourself to these things. These things ought to matter to you. And sometimes churches get a really uh, critical and negative uh, view from the world, and sometimes rightly so, but at other times it's just because it's a spiritual battle. And as I think about the impact that churches and Christians make in their communities, it is significant. I read one study that was from the Faith Counts study that said that religion in the United States contributes $1.2 trillion uh, to the economy annually. And to put that into perspective, that is the equivalent to being the world's 15th largest economy. More than 180 countries and territories. And that's just the financial aspect of it. That's not speaking of the families that are encouraged and uh, the ethics that are taught and the blessings that are given and the prayers that are prayed and uh, the missions that are carried out and the hungry people that are fed and the people who need clothing that receive clothing. I mean, there's so many things. The, the people who are in addiction, who receive uh, release, the recovery ministries. I mean, there's, there's a thousand different things and we would just be touching the surface of what it is that we can do to make a difference in the world. As I think about these good works, these good works, first of all, express gratitude to God. It's not out of obligation. It's 
out of the blessing that we have received. So we say, Father, you've done so much for me. You've saved me. You've forgiven me. You've redeemed me by the blood of the Lamb. And I want to live my life for something that counts. I want to be a part of something that is good and holy and right and brings glory to you. And I think good works express our desire to know and to do the will of the Father. If we have a relationship with God the Father, would we not want to know and to do his will? And then good works shine light into the darkness and they're a witness to the world. We can be like that pilot instructor who made a difference in Steve McQueen's life. And it might be something that you think is not all that significant. It might be a coworker. It might be somebody that you coach with down at the little league field. It might be somebody that you go to school with. Somebody that's your neighbor. And you're able to shine light into the darkness as a witness to the world. And that's an encouragement to other believers as well. And God blesses those good works. There's a phrase that's become kind of popular in the last uh, maybe 20 years, maybe longer than that. And it's the phrase, uh, pay it forward. And the concept is, um, because you've been blessed in some way and you've had good done for you, then you do good for someone else. And the phrase and the concept uh, inspired an award-winning novel back in 1999. It also uh, inspired a, a movie uh, and eventually an emphasis day. And the idea is not a Christian idea, so to speak, but it's a good idea. And the idea is, if we've been blessed, would we not want to be a blessing to somebody else? Why would we want to keep that to ourselves? Church, Jesus redeemed you so that you can have life with God, life for God, and you can make him known in the world. And because you've been redeemed, your life ought to be a blessing. You ought not live selfishly. You ought to live selflessly for the glory of God. And I come back to this last phrase in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 31. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus became wisdom for, from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Did you know every Christian testimony is a story of redemption? It is. Every time you tell the story about how you came to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you give honor and glory to God, and he is pleased with that. And the story of your Christian testimony is how God has changed your life. In church, we all ought to have a story of how God has changed our lives. And that story is going to be a little bit different. God changed my life when I was a seven-year-old boy. And God got a hold of me. And I know that I was saved. That God had a purpose and a plan for my life. Some of you have come to faith much further along in your life. But at whatever point you've come to faith, you've got a story to tell. And that story is about the redemption that is available in Jesus Christ. That you can be forgiven of your sins. That you can have everlasting life. That you can spend eternity with God. And in the here and now, your life can make a difference. 
And that's how I want to live my life. I want to live my life for something that is bigger than the ordinary. I want to live my life for something that's going to last, not something that's temporary. I want to live my life in a way that blesses other people. It's not just a blessing to myself. And that's the kind of church we want to be. We want to be a church that tells the story. And not only tells it, but lives it for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know where everybody is today spiritually, but God does. He knows what's on your heart and your mind. And if you are a blood-bought child of God, you've been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to take a moment just to say thank you. Don't take it for granted. Just thank God that your sins are forgiven and that you are with him, that you've been set free. And then ask the Lord if that's the case, how does he want you to be living your life? What's his purpose? And are you living according to that purpose? But I also know enough to know that in a group this size and the folks that are listening online and maybe listening to this message later on, there's some people that have never been redeemed. You've never been bought back. You've never been born again. And God is calling you. He's convicting you. He's showing you the way in his only son, Jesus. Would you be willing to repent and believe today for your life to be eternally changed because of Jesus? Say, Pastor, I want that. I want to take that step of faith, and I want to turn from my sins and turn to Jesus. You can right now, wherever you are, you can pray, and you can ask the Lord, based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, to be your Savior and Lord. And God will hear that prayer of faith, and he will redeem you, and he will bring you into his family. But as many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believed on his name. Father, we thank you today that we have the hope of the gospel, the hope that we have in Jesus. We're grateful that this life is not all that there is, but at the same time, we're grateful for it. We know that you've got us here for a reason. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that each one of us would be encouraged, that we'd walk out of here today reminded that we are a people who have been set free. We are a people who are not bound up by our past. We're a people who are not still mired in our sins, but we have been set free in Jesus. And I pray that because we've been set free, that we'd be a people who live as free people in Christ. And God, as we continue to make you known in the world, we ask that your spirit would move and work in our midst God, we want to see lost people saved and saved people discipled and encouraged. So, Lord, we give this time of close over to you. If there are spiritual decisions and steps that need to be made, I pray that people would respond appropriately. And we give you the glory for it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.